Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end. This is the word of the Lord. John comes right near the end of his gospel and says, There are many other signs performed by Jesus Messiah that I could have told you, but I have told you this many in order that you may come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah of God and believing have life in his name. You need to understand that all four of the gospel writers had at his disposal more than he could put into one scroll. So all of them pick and choose the material that they think will reach their readers in a more convincing way to make the points they think are most important. And that's certainly true as each of the four comes to his own ending. Mark says that after the crucifixion, death, burial, Sunday morning, women came to the tomb, found the stone rolled away, but no body there. Someone, a young man, brilliantly white clothing, said, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised. And the women stood there, mouths open, looking at each other. End of the gospel. And John said, No, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. The women ran to the upper room where the disciples were bolted in for fear of the authorities who had sentenced Jesus to be crucified. Pounding on the door, Peter and John ran to the tomb. One looked in, then the other. Later that same evening, Jesus himself appeared to them in the upper room. They were all there. Well, except for Thomas, he wasn't there. So when they told Thomas the next day, Thomas, you should have been here. We saw the Lord. Oh, I can't believe that, he said. Only if I could touch him. Only if I could see his wounded side, his hands, his feet. And the next Sunday night, he came again. Thomas, touch me if you need to. Luke says, after the women and the rolled away stone and the messenger from God, would you believe, he says, behold, that same day, two were walking home to Emmaus, about seven miles and on the way they were joined by a third. They did not recognize him. They were walking along, kicking their feet in the dirt, mumbling about how we thought he was the one, we thought he was the one, and how that one began to explain to them through the scriptures how it was necessary that the Messiah be crucified, that he offer himself for the sins of the whole world. It was getting dark, so they asked this stranger, come in, come in, it's not safe out there on the roads at night. And they gave him the privilege of breaking the bread, and when he did, blessed it, broke it, gave it, they recognized him, and then he was gone. So they jumped up from the table, and they ran back down those darkened roads to Jerusalem, pounding on the door and saying, we've seen the Lord. 
Yeah, we know. He's been here. Matthew says the women went to the tomb, saw the stone rolled away. The body was not there. They saw a young man in brilliant, dazzling white raiment saying, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's been raised. Not long after, the disciples were at the top of the mountain by the lake, Sea of Galilee, where Jesus told them to go, and he came. And that's our lection for today. This is Matthew's ending to that story. Number one, when they saw him, they worshipped him, your translation says. But in all these Gospels, there are key words to each one. Mark has key words, key phrases that he uses again and again. So does Luke, so does Matthew, John. So Matthew has used this word before, very early in the gospel, this part about worship. In Greek, it literally means to bend the knee, to bend the knee or to pay homage. You know where Matthew first used it? Only he tells us there were magi, stargazers, who came from the east following this brilliant light in the heavens until it led them to a cave underneath an inn in Bethlehem. And when they saw the baby, they bent the knee. They paid homage. They worshipped him. That's what people are supposed to do. It's what the Magi did in the very beginning when he was only a baby. It's what these disciples to do when they know he's been dead and now is alive again. Elizabeth Sherrill and her husband John are now in their mid to late 80s. She's been one of my favorite devotional writers all these years. She's written that she and John decided they wanted to go to the famed cathedral in Spain called Santiago de Compostelo. The people of Spain hold that the remains of James, one of the twelve, are buried there. They're entombed at this cathedral in Spain. We have nothing in the Bible that tells us what happened to James after the disciples were dispersed out of the city. There are stories by early Christians saying he was martyred. The Spaniards say, but first he had come to Spain. He had come to Spain and preached the gospel, then he was martyred, and then his body came back to Spain and is entombed there. Whatever the case may be, thousands of people make the pilgrimage every year to Santiago de Compostelo, Elizabeth said she and John decided to go, but she said, we're too old to walk 100 miles or 200, 300, 400. There are several routes, one of them up to 800 kilometers, which is roughly 500 miles. We couldn't do that, but we rented a car, and we drove slowly, looking at the pilgrims, looking at them, some obviously very poor, barefoot, others expensive walking shoes, jogging shoes, we followed along quietly, slowly, not getting in the way. We made it more than 400 miles, still 75 miles away. And we saw this little building out in the middle of a field there. And I could see the name on the door, she said, Puerta de Perdun, the door of pardon. I said, hey, John, we might ought to stop here. They pulled over the car. They went into this little building. 
Now she said there were no magnificent Renaissance painting here, no expensive stained glass windows, a few wooden pews with wooden, very hard wooden kneelers on the backs of them. There were a half dozen people maybe, she said. No one saying a word on those hard wood kneelers facing the little altar. John and I knelt too. I understood the door of this place, the door of pardon. It says, you haven't made it yet. You're not there. You got 75 more miles. But you're on the right way. This is the way. Just keep walking. Keep walking. Number two. Matthew says, but some doubted. Now there's no one there that he mentions except the 11. Judas is dead by now. The 11 and Jesus. It's Matthew who said Jesus called these closest disciples of his, O ye of little faith. O ye of little faith. And they're still doubting some. He's about to entrust the mission to some who bend the knee and some who are not so sure what all of this means. Alma Barkman lives in Winnipeg in Canada with her husband of many years. They're in their late 70s. Alma has written that all these years they've nursed along an apple tree in their front yard. Now we have hard winters, she said, really hard winters, and we always wonder, is this the one that's going to kill it? But the next spring it buds out again, and by early fall, before the harsh winters come, we have apples. Last fall, she said, we seem to have more apples than ever. One morning at breakfast, I said, we got to pick those apples. So we got our ladder and got out there, and both of us are saying we're really awfully old to be climbing up on a ladder in the top of an apple tree. And we were picking the ones off the lowest branches when suddenly here came men. And we looked. They had on coveralls. They were city employees. They were working on a utility line down our street for two or three blocks. They had seen these two old folks trying to get their apples out of the tree. They said, we have a 20-minute break mid-morning. Need some apple pickers? And I couldn't believe how many apples they picked in 20 minutes. Eleven guys? They were filling our baskets. So I said, this is Friday. Will you be back near here Monday? Oh, yeah, they said, we got several days work here. And she said, well, it's 10 o'clock when you came. If you come at 10 o'clock Monday, in our garage, I will have hot apple pie and black coffee for everybody. So she said, Monday morning, we got up, had our breakfast, and we started baking apple pies. And at 10 o'clock, we had the garage swept clean, tables and chairs set up out there. And when we raised the door, here they came. And they sat down, and we were serving big dishes of apple pie and black coffee. And I counted. There was one missing. I said, there were 11 of you Friday. Now there are only 10. One guy said, really? And he looked around. Yeah, there was an empty seat. And one of the others said, I guess he didn't really believe you would do it. And he missed the apple pie and the coffee. Bring whatever faith you have. Bring however much you have. 
and stay on the road. Number three. Matthew says, Jesus said, Go ye into all to the nations, it says here, to all the world, some translations say. But in Greek it really says, Panta ta ethne. Ethne is the Greek word from which we get the word ethnic. Ethnic. You need to remember in long ago times, people thought of themselves as one tribe or nation and then all the rest. If you were a Greek, everybody else was a barbarian. If you were a Jew, everybody else is an ethnic, a goyim, a Gentile. By the time Matthew writes, the Jews of the next generation have gone back to the synagogues. Matthew is realizing if this movement is to continue, it's going to have to be among the ethnics. And that Jesus was commissioning even these of little faith to go to all the ethnics and teach them. Teach them to obey. The resurrection is what makes it all hang together. But if we don't tell this story, you see, if Matthew had not told this story, if Mark and Luke and John had not told this story, if those first 11 had never told the story, if you've been listening to me for years, you know that Dr. Fred Craddock's one of my favorites. He's 85 years old now. But I read a story that he had written not long ago. He said he was preaching in another city some years ago, right after he had seen a program on television about greyhound racing dogs, and that they just run their hearts out for years, and then finally, they are no good at racing anymore. They can't win. So what happens to all these magnificent dogs? Well, there are people who adopt them. I thought about that when one time Gail and I were in Colorado Springs, Colorado, many years ago. And uh, we were there with a couple who had been in, in uh, college at the same time I was, good friends. And it was pouring down rain that night. We, we had dinner somewhere in Colorado Springs and got back to the motel where we were staying. And the woman at the desk said, I'm sorry, it's pouring down rain here. It really messes things up. But there's one thing you can do even in the rain here. And we said, what's that? You can go to the dog races. I said, well, we're, we're not gamblers. And she said, have you ever seen the greyhounds run? And, no, I haven't, Gail. No, she hadn't. Well, I've got two passes here. It's got a big covered area for the spectators. There, go, go see the greyhounds. So we went. And there were some more retired people than anybody else, you know, putting their $2 on this dog and $2 on that dog. And we're sitting there watching. And what we saw was that they'd parade these dogs like they do horses, you know, for a few moments and put them into their little chutes. And then all of a sudden, around the track would come this little white replica of a rabbit. And the doors would open, and this little rabbit was on a rail right on the inside. And these greyhounds would start after it. And as however fast they ran, it always went a little bit faster to keep them running. Well, Dr. Craddock said he was invited to have dinner in the home of a couple where he was preaching. And when he got there, they said, uh, Dr. Craddock, we're just getting the rolls out of the oven. And I'm finishing up the iced tea, putting ice in the glasses. And about that time, 
this big old greyhound dog walked in the living room. And the man said, Dr. Craddock, he's gentle as can be, gentle as can be. We adopted him after he could no longer run. So they went to the kitchen, and Dr. Craddock said, I decided to talk to the dog. <coughs> so I said to this, this greyhound, you're, you're a beautiful animal, a w really wonderfully beautiful animal. Did you just get too old? And the dog sat up and said, no. <laughs> I was still doing wonderfully well. And Dr. Craddock said, but you got to the point you couldn't run as fast. I mean, you weren't winning. He said, I was winning about as many as I was losing. And Dr. Craddock said, then why did you quit? And he said, one day I ran fast enough to get a look at the rabbit. <laughs> I'd been running and running and running, and what I was chasing wasn't even real. And Craddock said, I understand the feeling. Now, when I read that, I thought, you and I have all chased a few things that weren't real, and you know people with whom you work or play who come to that moment, that moment of epiphany when suddenly they, wow, just chasing more stuff to put in a storage bin somewhere or to have to dust every few days is not really what life is about, is it? That's the time you witness. Not in an argumentative way. Can you tell somebody about those moments in your life when you've been aware of the grace of God? Number four, God said to Abram and Sarah, I'm going to make you parents. Roll up your bed, pack up your tent, come with me. Where are we going? I'll show you the way. And I will be with you. In my Sunday school class, taught one class here, as you know, for 26 years. I've pointed out to them as we've gone book by book how many times to how many different people God says, I'll be with you. You can count on it. Last night, I did my last wedding. I've kept a book all these years. I bought a little notebook many years ago. I started writing funerals and weddings. I'd sent an email, as I do every morning, to my family members and said, I've got my last wedding coming up Saturday night. And my brother emailed back. He still lives in the hometown. So he said, who was your first couple that you married? Who were they? So I emailed back. Well, it was Jimmy Lawless and Virgie Evans. I'd already been a preacher two years by then. I'd already had 14 funerals. You and I have been through a lot the last 33 years in your life and in mine. I tell you from time to time, I'm praying for you every night before I sleep. And if I tell you that, I am. 
You're on my list. I'm praying for you every night before I sleep. But I want you to know, not everybody I pray for gets well. Gail's mother had cancer. I prayed for her every day. She didn't get well. My father had lung cancer. I'd always prayed for him every night before I slept. He didn't get well. Gail's father had a stroke, a bleeder kind in his brain. I prayed, 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 and he died. My mother is going into dementia, that horrible long 10-year silence that you've read about. The last four or five years, she didn't call my name. Her eyes looked like maybe I was somebody familiar, but she couldn't call my name. I prayed for her every night. She died. Gail and I had a daughter. We made so many wrong decisions. Our boys were making so many good decisions, so many right decisions, and our daughter was getting it all wrong. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And when she was 31, out in California, she got a mix of alcohol and drugs that stopped her heart. But never, ever have I doubted that God was with us. Not ever. I've always believed if things were going wonderfully well, the Almighty was celebrating with us, and if things were really hard, he was grieving with us. Suma Kid writes that when she had a five-year-old son, one night she had done the dishes, got the kids in bed. She was relaxing with her favorite book, her husband in another chair there. She was aware there was somebody there. She looked up from her book, and her five-year-old son was standing there. She asked, what's wrong? Nothing, he said. He came over and crawled up in her lap and just snuggled down against her, and she said, what's the matter? Nothing. Come on now, she said. You can tell me. And he said, I just want to be with you. And Sue writes, when more than anything else, you want to be with Jesus, he wants to be with you even more.